There's a slight correction from the bulletin on the scripture reading this morning, and your scripture sheet is correct. If you would follow along with me, our gospel reading this morning, our New Testament reading comes from the Gospel of Mark, chapter 1, verses 14 and 15, and then we pick back up with verse 21 through 39. If you would follow along in your Bibles, your scripture sheet, or your pew Bibles. <clears throat> Now after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Verse 21. And they went into Capernaum and immediately on the Sabbath he entered the synagogue and was teaching. And they were astonished at his teaching for he taught them as one who had authority and not as the scribes. And immediately... There was in their synagogue a man with an unclean spirit, and he cried out, What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. But Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be silent and come out of him. And the unclean spirit convulsing him and crying out with a loud voice came out of him. And they were all amazed, so that they questioned among themselves, saying, what is this? A new teaching with authority. He commands even the unclean spirits, and they obey him. And at once his fame spread everywhere throughout all the surrounding region of Galilee. And immediately he left the synagogue and entered the house of Simon and Andrew with James and John. Now Simon's mother-in-law lay ill with a fever, and immediately they told him about her. And he came and took her by the hand and lifted her up. And the fever left her, and she began to serve them. That evening at sundown, they brought to him all who were sick or oppressed by demons. And the whole city was gathered together at the door. And he healed many who were sick and with various diseases, and cast out many demons. And he would not permit the demons to speak, because they knew him. And rising very early in the morning, while it was still dark, he departed and went out to a desolate place, and there he prayed. And Simon and those who were with him searched for him. And they found him and said to him, Everyone is looking for you. And he said to them, Let's go on to the next towns, that I may preach there also. For that is why I came out. And he went throughout all Galilee, preaching in their synagogues and casting out demons. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. To your respective classes. Let's return to the scripture we read with Bill in Mark chapter 1 as we are systematically on Sunday morning working our way uh, to cover all the books of scripture. We've just spent three Sundays in the book of Exodus and we come now to spend a, two or three Sundays in the book of Mark in the gospel according to Mark. I wanted to wait until this time. I didn't want to make this announcement earlier uh, because we have quite a few people that that uh, aren't here during the announcements. <clears throat> of course, this morning, this is Christ Presbyterian Church Sunday dinner, and uh, we are, uh, this is just a, a happy time 
every two months we have a dinner like this, and it's just a great celebration. Um, and this, uh, this Lord's Day, this Sunday dinner, uh, we wanted to honor uh, Mr. Charles Yancey, uh, who last year, uh, because of his wife's illness, uh, moved in to be closer to where she was. And uh, so he's, he's uh, closer into Memphis. He lived out here in, in Oakland for years, and he and Frida came here to church, uh, and they were a blessing to all of us. And so we asked Charles to, to come back and join us, to come home for the Sunday. Uh, Charles, we thank you. Thank you for the example you set. This man's a theologian, folks. Uh, he, he, he knows his theology and has studied that theology with a, with a love and a passion. Uh, he, his, I don't have to tell you about his warmth and his fellowship. Thank you, Charles, and thank you for how you taught us as husbands to care for our wives and take care of our wives. You set an example for all of us. We're glad you're here. Julie, at the end of the service, when we go through the line, would you make sure that, that uh, he's first in line? That's, that's the, in your second, okay? <laughs> Paul, that doesn't include you. You understand? <laughs> All right. By the way, as we come to the Lord's table, it's most unusual. We've never come from our tables before. And when we come to that this morning, um, just as we do with the rows of seats, just come as the tables. You know, this table, this, you know, just, just come forward. If you see the table in front of you come, then you come after them until we get to the back. Now, Let's pray together. Our Father, as priests, we bow before you this morning. We've been prophets in this week, taking your word to our neighbors, taking your word to our families, taking your word to the world around us, at school, at work. But now we come as priests, bringing the world to you, bringing our friends, our brothers and sisters in Christ before you to pray. Our Father, we pray this morning for Georgina and Vaughn Gant, and we pray that you would bless them as they are, uh, had to travel to New York for the memorial service for his brother. We pray that you would bless Vaughn and Georgina. Uh, thank you for taking them there safely. Bring them home safely. We pray that you would bless their testimony to their family during this time. Pray that you would speak to them as only you're able to speak to them. Bless Gail and Bill Moore here. We pray that you would bring your omnipotent comfort to bear upon their lives. Father, thank you for how you blessed in this week. Our Father, we pray for Ray Lynch and Claire Reddit as they, uh, Father, struggle with their sight with their eyes. We pray that you would bring healing to their eyes. Father, bless them in this. We pray for Jim Bennington and Billy Griggs that you would, Father, give them eyes to see
what you have prepared for them. Give them strength of body, but Father, give them strength of soul even more and cause them to look forward with anticipation. And we pray that prayer for all of us, Father. Teach us to look forward with anticipation. Without fear, knowing that you have prepared a place for us. Bless, Father, now as we open your word. John Sartell cannot teach, so there won't make any difference in our lives. So we pray in these next few minutes that we would hear your voice in our hearts. We've heard you in this room before. You've changed us. You've changed us, Father. Continue that to change us this morning from the depth of our souls, from the inside out. Maybe some of us for the first time. For the glory of Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen. Then came Jesus. Mark. Mark is the shortest gospel. His gospel begins with the ministry of John the baptizer, not with the birth of Jesus. Matthew and Luke take four chapters to get what Mark does in the first chapter. In the first chapter, Mark does what he does through the whole book. He moves swiftly through the subject. He moves swiftly through the ministry of John the Baptist, the baptism of Jesus. Jesus confronting Satan in the wilderness and then the beginning of the ministry of Jesus in Galilee. He covers all of that in one chapter. Look at verse 21 on your scripture sheet of Mark 1. Let me show you something. And they went into Capernaum and immediately on the Sabbath he entered the synagogue and was teaching. And they were astonished at his teaching. And he taught them as one who had authority, not as the scribes. And immediately there was in their synagogue a man with unclean spirit. Immediate, immediately. It's the Greek word euthus. It's used all through Mark. It has in, in translated, it's, it's in translation, it's translated immediately like 34 times. It's used more times than that. In this passage this morning, it's used more times. It's used eight times, translated immediately. But the, the Greek word euthus appears in these verses even more than that. It's just a, a quick movement, immediately this, immediately that. Straightway is what I think the old King James Version said. That word was used 14, only used 14 times in Matthew, 14 times in Luke, only two times in John, 36 times in the gospel according to Mark. Straightway, immediately he did this, and then he did this, and then this. Mark, through, Mark moves through the life of Jesus quickly, but accurately, communicating that Jesus was the Son of Man and Son of God. The Gospel may be, proved, may, may be brief, but the essential truths of the gospel are there. It's the gospel of Jesus Christ, the incarnation, the Son of God come in the flesh to give his life a ransom for sin. Matthew and Luke is with episode to episode to episode to speak in much more detail uh, about those episodes. So who wrote this fast-moving gospel? This is John Mark. He was the one that hung around the disciples. He was much like a younger brother to the disciples. 
This was John Mark. And he talks about this himself. The other gospels don't talk about it. But he was so humble that he talked about it himself. He was probably that young man in Gethsemane that as they tried, was they arrested Jesus and they tried to, to, to grab some of his disciples, he ran right out of his clothes. He ran out of Gethsemane naked, fleeing for his life. This was John Mark. Do you know that Paul fired him? Fired him in the middle of the first missionary journey and when Barnabas said, let's take him on the second one, Paul said, not on your life. We're not doing that. This was John Mark then that trained under Barnabas and became an aide and secretary to the apostle Peter. This is John Mark that in Paul's last days in the prison of Rome wrote Timothy and said, bring John Mark with you. All evidence points to him writing the book of Mark while he was in Rome with Peter. He was writing to a Gentile congregation then, and it's obvious through the book, just as Luke was writing to a Gentile congregation. Evidence also tells us that he became a secretary, very close, and secretary and was under the counsel and influence of the apostle Peter. And you'll see that in the book. I've been captivated for years. I looked forward to this. I knew immediately when I came to Mark what I was going to preach. I've been captivated for years with the verses in Matthew, Mark, and Luke that speak of the transition from the great ministry of John the baptizer, that transition to the ministry of Jesus. We, we have that happen in all the Gospels right before our eyes. John has announced that Jesus was indeed the long-awaited Messiah. He was the ambassador, the ambassador that foretold in the Old Testament that would come and announce the Messiah. He had baptized Jesus, anointed him to the mission of Messiah. Then Jesus is led into the wilderness to confront Satan to do battle with Satan. When Jesus returns from the wilderness, when Jesus returns from the wilderness, John has been arrested. Now, you've got to understand who John the Baptist was in Israel. Israel had been dominated for years by the greatest prophet Israel had ever seen. Jesus said that John the baptizer was greater than Elijah, greater than Isaiah, greater than Jeremiah. There was everyone, everyone in Israel had heard of John the baptizer. Most people in Israel had not only heard of him, they had heard him preach. Never had there been a prophet like him. A revival burned like Fire, a wildfire through Israel under the ministry of John the baptizer. Some had even expected that he was the Messiah. But then Israel is shocked. The readers of the gospel are shocked. The diabolical, the satanic Herod had arrested John the baptizer. 
I mean, this was, this was earth-shaking to this culture. At that point in the Gospels, and this is that transition of which I spoke. In that point in the Gospels, there's a verse in Matthew, a verse in Mark, and a verse in Luke that goes something like this. It's Mark 1.14. Look at it. Now after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God. You first read, you read that first sentence. After John was arrested, and you have to think if you're reading this, horrors. This is the end. The ambassador, the ambassador to the coming king, the ambassador of the Messiah, has been arrested and is in jail. This, this thing is going to die right. This movement is going to die right in the beginning. Did Jesus wring his hands and say, this is the end of my mission, my ambassador, the greatest prophet to ever grace Israel is languishing in prison. Did Jesus say, what am I to do? Herod at the time could have cared less about Jesus. He didn't know who Jesus was. John was the thorn in Herod's flesh. John, in his preaching publicly, had called Herod an adulterer, a wife stealer, a murderer, and he was all of those and worse. Herod thought he had put an end to this incredible revival led by John the baptizer. Satan had to be dancing with glee. But then we read the words. Now, after John was arrested, then Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God. Now, because we know the rest of the story, we would say to Herod, we would say to Satan, you have no idea what's been unleashed. People learn from this. Think about that. We, we would be shaken. Great John the baptizer has been arrested. He would soon be killed. Then came Jesus. And you know what Jesus did. John the Baptist was pale compared to him. Learn from this. Sometimes the wicked seem to win great victories, victories that shake us to the core, Vic victories that make us want to say, what's the use? But God always, always has a greater plan. I want you to look on your scripture sheet. It's Isaiah 14, 26 and 27. In Isaiah 14, before this, God has been speaking of what he will do in the nations. And then he says this. This is the purpose that is proposed concerning the whole earth. This is the plan that is purposed concerning the whole earth. This plan that I've given is proposed concerning the whole earth. And this is the hand that is stretched out over the nations. He's talking about his hand. For the Lord of hosts has proposed, and who will annul it? 
His hand is stretched out. And who will, and who will turn it back? Wow. So you removed John the Baptist here. You think this is the end of it? Then comes Jesus. Have you ever heard of George Wishart? I bet you haven't. Just curious. Anybody ever hear, hear, heard of George Wishart? Anybody? George Wishart in fifteen, in the fifteen early fifteen hundreds, was the single most noted preacher in Scotland. He was preaching the Reformation doctrines of Luther, of Calvin. He was sought by thousands that they might hear him preach. He was sought by the government to be jailed and killed. He was finally, George Wishart was finally arrested, tried, persecuted, and burned at the stake. Everyone thought the Reformation in Scotland had been dealt a fatal blow. But there was a young disciple of George Wishart. In fact, just previously to Wishart's arrest, this young convert had been convinced of the doctrines of the Reformation. Wishart had preached like Calvin and Luther, and he had convinced this young man. In fact, this young man, when Wishart would preach, for the last few times he preached, Wishart would stand behind, or, or he, this young man would stand behind Wishart with a long sword. I mean, this was a dangerous time. He was his Wishart's bodyguard. His name was John Knox. And you know who John Knox is. Satan, you may have killed the great Wishart, but God had been preparing to unleash John Knox on Scotland. So John the baptizer, he's arrested, he's killed. And then came Jesus. Then what happened? He, he, he moves briefly, Mark moves briefly through the call of the disciples, a couple of verses. And then we read in verse 21. Look at it with me. And they went into Capernaum, and immediately on the Sabbath he entered the synagogue and was teaching. And they were astonished at his teaching, for he taught them as one who had authority, not as the scribes. And immediately there was in the synagogue a man with an unclean spirit, and he cried out, What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. But Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be silent and come out of him. And the unclean spirit convulsing him and crying out with a loud voice came out of him. And they were all amazed, so that they questioned among themselves, saying, What is this? A new teaching with authority. He commands even the unclean spirits, and they obey him. And at once his fame spread everywhere throughout all the surrounding region of Galilee. Now listen. In Mark and Luke's gospel, that is the first miracle they record. This is not the first miracle that Matthew records. It's not the first miracle that John records. This certainly is not the first miracle performed by Jesus. But it was the first miracle that Mark and Luke chronicled 
in their gospels. Why? Why did they choose to begin with this miracle? They were making a statement. Both of them were writing to Gentiles. They were making a statement to the Gentile world to which they were writing. This Jesus, this Messiah, holds the ultimate authority. He has authority over evil. He has authority over the evil in this world. The evil in this world must yield his authority. Now Jesus, where had he just been? He had just been in the wilderness. He wasn't dragged out there. It was not Satan's idea. Satan thought it was. But we read he was led by the Spirit. He was the second Adam and he went to the wilderness, not in a garden. The first Adam was confronted in a garden. He had been, Jesus had been waiting, waiting, waiting through the centuries to do this one thing, to go the second Adam and confront Satan. And he left that wilderness victorious. Jesus had just come from going head to head with Satan himself in the wilderness. And so in Luke and Mark's first miracle, Jesus takes a demon by the proverbial nape of his neck and throws him out. Mark was saying, Jesus not only came to confront Satan, but he came to free this world from the power of Satan, from the power of evil. He had confronted Satan, but now he was taking his authority and power to push back the darkness, to push back the evil. What is that message? What is this? What message does this deliver to us? Whenever Jesus speaks with authority and power, sin and evil are always exposed, whether in the world or in the church in our individual lives, when the holiness of God is preached, when the light of God is preached, when the truth of God, when the authority of God's word comes to bear, what happens? The sin in our lives gets exposed. <laughs> they thought John the Baptist preached with authority. His authority and his power paled compared to Jesus. When I was, when I was a boy in Drapers Valley, Virginia, I loved to find, we lived in the country, and I loved to find, go in the woods and find large rocks, small logs that, that even in my frail body of a child I could, I could push or that I could lift away. I'd turn them over, and under those rocks was an entire zoo of creatures, all kinds of bugs and spiders and worms in various stages of development. Sometimes you would even find a, a snake small snake. But the moment you turned the log over and the light flooded in, what happened? Those creatures scurried. They went everywhere trying to get out of the light, finding hiding places. That is what the message and work of Jesus will do in our lives, always does. That's what the message and work of Jesus will do in a society. You want to know why? Our culture has come to hate Jesus. There's a holy hatred of Christ in this nation. It really is an unholy hatred of Christ. Why? He exposes the darkness of abortion. 
with his authority, with his truth. He exposes the darkness of autonomy that somehow we're self-ruled, that we made ourselves. He exposes the darkness of pornography. It's what the preaching of the word of God does. That's what Christ does. That's what was happening here. Now we need to hear this. Listen. Jesus has authority, just as he had authority over the evil there. He has authority over the evil in, in my life, in our lives. Think of it this way. Jesus broke the power of sin judicially in our lives when he died for our sins. He destroyed the power of sin in our lives. If we go home, if we know him, if we go home this afternoon, if he calls us home this afternoon, we can stand in the courtroom of God and say to all of heaven, who can bring a charge against me? For Christ has died. Jesus handled our court case. We had a court case. The world has a coming court date. God already knows it. In his courtroom, The world will stand there without Jesus and without the cross. We don't have to worry about that. Jesus walked into that courtroom with our sins at Calvary. He took our sin. He took our punishment. He took our, he took our guilt and then he took our punishment. We're done. That's what the authority and power of Christ has done with this judicial issue being in the courtroom of God. But Jesus also has authority over the sin that still plagues us. The Holy Spirit has changed our hearts, but that nature of sin still remains within us. And we constantly face that every day. We can't get away from it. And we can, but we can pray. We can pray. Jesus, as you broke the power of sin in our lives judicially, as you stood in that courtroom for us and you took the evil and the power of sin in our lives and destroyed it, just as you broke the power of sin in our lives judicially, break the power of my sin nature that is ever with me. The sins that plague me, break the power of those sins in my life. That's called sanctification. Jesus has demonstrated his authority and power over sin by our justification. And he also daily shows his power over our sin through sanctification. Let me speak to you as fathers for a minute. Some of you already have teenage daughters. Some of you are looking down and you see your beautiful eight-year-old, nine-year-old daughter and you're thinking, someday... Some ugly, big-eared guy is going to come knocking on the door. You know, you dread that day. Let me give you some advice. When that guy knocks on your door, you open. Don't let your daughter answer the door for heaven. That's the worst thing you can do. Because she's going to look at the guy and say, I'm ready. You open the door and look at him and say, what do you want? He's going to want to run. You open the door and say, really? Really? 
doing something. May I help you? Sometimes Larry Shelley would be at our house when somebody would come to, to, to uh, pick Jill or Jamie up. And he would look at me and say, let me go to the door. <laughs> he always said, John, he said, he said, you just, you don't need to say anything. Just carry your shotgun to the door with you. <laughs> now, that's my advice to you this morning, fathers. But now, for my advice for all of you. When sin knocks, don't you answer the door. You send Jesus to the door. He's got an attitude about sin. And you say, well, did Jesus answer that? Yes! All through Scripture, just send him to the door. Send the Holy Spirit to the door. If we try to answer the sin in our lives, in and of ourselves, we're nothing more than secular moralists against powerful spiritual evil. You would never think of appearing in God's courtroom without Jesus and the cross. But why do we try to deal with evil in our lives without the authority and power of Jesus? Well, that's that section. What happens next in this fast-moving gospel? And we're almost done. Look at Mark 1, 29. And immediately after he left the synagogue and entered the house of Simon, the house of Simon and Andrew with James and John. Now Simon's mother-in-law lay ill with a fever. And immediately they told him about her. There's that word again. And he came and took her by the hand and lifted her up. And the fever left her, and she began to serve them. That evening at sundown, they brought him all who were sick or oppressed by demons, and the whole city was gathered together at the door. And he healed many who were sick with various diseases and cast out many demons, and he would not permit the demons to speak because they knew him. This is one of my favorite themes in the gospel. I love this. When Jesus met sickness, he healed him. When he met a blind man, he made him see. You can't find him meet a blind man in the Gospels that he didn't make see or meet a deaf man. He made him hear. A paralyzed man, he made him walk. Why? When he met someone with a flu, he made him well. Why? You say, well, he wanted to prove he was God. He did it by fiat. All the other prophets had to pray to heal people. Jesus never prayed to heal people. He just ordered because he was God. So, and he wanted his disciples to see it. They saw this hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of times. And they were saying, only God can do this. So that was the reason he did it. He, he wanted to prove his deity, certainly. Why did he do it? Because he felt compassion for the people who were sick. Yes, he felt compassion. But there's another reason. That's even more basic. It's more basic than he wanted to prove his deity. It's more basic than he wanted to show his consolation. He did it because Jesus, the Son of God, could not and would not live with the results of sin in this world. He wouldn't live with all the horror that Satan and sin and the fall had brought to our world. He was not comfortable with any sickness of any sort Jesus had come from heaven. Are there any blind people in heaven? No. Are there any deaf people in heaven? Are there any paralyzed people? Are there any sick people? No. No. 
Look at Peter's mother-in-law. She did not have leprosy. She was not paralyzed. She did not seem to be near death. She had a common fever. Jesus didn't say, it's only a fever. She'll get over it in three days. She was sick and Jesus was in the house. And that only meant one thing. She had to be healed. Sickness was a result of the fall. It wasn't any direct sin on her part, but it was just a result of the fall. He wouldn't live with that. The Son of God had come from heaven from a place where no sickness, no death. Disease and death were alien to him. How beautiful is that? Why? why this is why Christians, they understood it early on. This is why those first Christians, when the Romans, the Romans had a custom of taking girl, female babies that they didn't want, or babies with a blemish of some sort or physical deformity, they would take them to the, they would take them out to the wilderness and leave them into the mountains and leave them exposed to die. Civilized, educated Romans would do that. It was, it was post-birth abortion. Mm. These pagans abandoned their babies because they were unwanted. The early Christians would go into the wilderness. They would find these babies and they'd bring them home. And they would nurse them and they would raise them. For one reason, the Roman world was converted. They couldn't explain it. Where did they learn this? They got it from Jesus. That's why Amy Carmichael, the great missionary to India, provided homes and education for the young girls in India who had been used as temple prostitutes. She brought out those girls out of the temple, out of prostitution, Gave them an education and gave them homes. It wasn't just that she felt for them. It wasn't just because of the consolation, the caring that was in her heart. It was a passion against the darkness, the evil in this world. That's why I keep saying to you, I, to get this across, wherever the church goes, they don't just, we just don't build churches. We build schools. We build hospitals. We build children's homes. Why? To push back the darkness. You never see Jesus meet darkness that he didn't push it back. That's why Christ Presbyterian Church, I can tell you this. I know what I don't know all that we'll do, all that you'll do. That that's why Christ Presbyterian Church has developed and will continue to develop ministries that pushes back the darkness here in Fayette County. William Mil most of us will not turn out to be William Wilberforce. William Wilberforce, for all of his adult life after he was converted, battled to destroy the slave trade in England. And it wasn't just because he had a passion. He had seen the slaves and, and he had this, this great care for the slaves. 
That was there, but that wasn't the main issue. It was the darkness of the slave trade. The evil of it all. The fallenness of it. Most of us will not be called to some great, great battle like this. Just before he died, William Wilberforce became victorious in that battle. But we will all, on a day-to-day basis, in our homes, in our lives, in our families, in our communities, will face the evil. And woe betide us if we look at the darkness. And it is dark out there. I've heard the last few years, I, I cannot believe the corruption that is in our culture. And woe betide us if we simply say, well, there's nothing we can do about it. Woe betide us if we say, That's, that doesn't concern me. It concerned Jesus, and we're supposed to be following him. We're supposed to be joined with him. Where was Jesus at the end of the day? Look at it. Verse 32. That evening at sundown, they brought to him all who were sick and oppressed by the demons. And the whole city was gathered together at the door. And he healed many who were sick with various diseases and cast out many demons. And he would not permit the demons to speak because they knew him. That evening at sundown, There's Jesus at the end of the day. What a beautiful picture. There's Jesus at the end of the day. The sun is setting and he's still heading, healing. He's still pushing back the darkness. Well, there's a greater healing. What's the epicenter of Jesus pushing back the darkness? What's the epicenter of Jesus pushing back the darkness? It's that cross. It's Calvary. That's the greater sickness. She's all these people that he healed. Someday they die. You know, he healed them then and they got perfectly well. No more leprosy, no more blindness, no more deafness, no more, they weren't paralyzed. But somewhere, somehow, they died. They died of high fever, died of pneumonia, heart attacks, leprosy, war, cancer, but they died. but a greater healing has taken place. Now, after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God. What's the gospel of God? That he'll make the blind to see and the deaf to the gospel of God is that he's the son of God and he took our sins upon himself and he died for our sins. That's the gospel of God. It's the cross. It's symbolized on this table, the body and blood of Jesus Christ. That was his most effective work in pushing back the darkness. One day, death will lay hold of us. But we have the cross of Jesus Christ and we have the resurrection. And Jesus will take us home we'll be able to say sinners though we live we were we'll be able to say who could bring a charge against me the darkness is over the darkness was over will be over and the great
greater light is there. Let's come to the Lord's table as we sing a most appropriate hymn, Come Behold the Wondrous Mystery.